0: Why don't we open with a word of prayer. (laughs) Father, we are so grateful to simply be called by your name, to be forgiven, to be reconciled, to have the hope of eternal life and have an inheritance. And not only do we have the the future hope of eternal life, but we have the pledge, the down payment, which is your spirit who's been given to us uh, as Uh, a testimony to of our inheritance and and so we thank you for your spirit who is at work in us uh, who testifies with our heart who bears witness that we are children and sons and sons of God and and co-heirs with Christ. Uh, Lord we have so much to be grateful for this morning and I pray that you help us to just be mindful of all that we have in Christ and and Lord I pray uh, as we consider these true this morning, that you'd help us to, to be more faithful in our witness as your people, uh, as we interact with the world around us, that we'd be faithful not only in the arguments that we can make, in and the, and the words that we can put together, but Lord, in the testimony of our lives and our conduct, in the way that we relate to others, uh, Lord, would we be faithful witnesses in that as well. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see this morning, uh, we are discussing the apologist of apologetics. So I know that most of you, probably many of you are ready to just kind of dive in directly to different arguments or proofs or tactics uh, because that's how I feel. I'm always ready to kind of bypass what others would uh, frame as introductory material. And I just want to go right into what I would think of as a substance. But I would argue that this really is like the first and most significant aspect of apologetics. Not only the the method by which you engage with people around you and the arguments you can make, but the manner in which you do it. And that is the apologists themselves, who you actually are as you engage and relate to the world around you. And I mentioned this in passing last week. It kind of just came up as we... Talked about things, but I felt the need to highlight it, and especially as you look at the this text of scripture that actually speak about our engagement with the world, it comes up over and over and over again, more so than any other thing. So I really want to just highlight it for all of us, especially in relation. We all know this is important as we think about our conduct and our testimony before the world, but I want to highlight it in relation to apologetics, especially and the arguments that we make, the defense that we make for the faith. Because we we saw last week, we said that our ultimate goal is to win people to Christ. And I think that's true. But that's not necessarily our immediate goal as we engage with people uh, in the world around us. So what I mean by that is that we don't have control over whether or not someone ultimately comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so, what we do have control over, though, is the immediate goal of being a faithful witness to Christ. And that's a little bit more modest. You may or may not see that person come to Christ. You may or may not win the argument, but you can be a faithful witness to Christ. And that is something that we do have control over. There's no one that can prevent you from being a faithful witness to Christ. There are no circumstances under which in our culture or society or anything else that will hinder us, that ultimately, definitively hinder you from being a faithful witness to Christ. Uh, so, even though, you know, our end, our end game, what we would like to see happen, we, we said it before the Lord, and we pray that people would not only hear the gospel, but come to a saving faith in Christ, but we ultimately, all that we can control is what God has put in our courts, which is our own testimony and our, our own lives. Uh, and, and so that's what I want to focus on this morning. So, there's the really difficult part is that as we think about apologetics and being a faithful witness, and we often talk about witnessing in terms of merely a verbal interaction. That, well, if I kind of spat out the gospel, if I told them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then I have witness to them. And and I'm not saying that's not true, but uh, you haven't been a faithful witness merely because you regurgitated a certain amount of information about Jesus or you communicated the four spiritual laws or something like that. Uh, Maybe you even gave them very compelling arguments that were persuasive. But there's more to being an ambassador of Christ than merely communicating information. And I would say being a faithful witness of Christ is going to comprehend the general context of our lives and then also the immediate context of communicating truth as you engage with that person. Uh, And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about, and I'll unpack that as we go. But both of these realities, the general context of our life and the immediate context of engagement uh, are going to either support or undermine the truth claims you're making on behalf of Christ. And so, again, I know everyone knows this, that our lives matter in relation to the our testimony before the world, but I just want to highlight it in relation to apologetics in this very discussion. So that's what we're talking about. What is the relationship between my life and the arguments that I'm making, the defense, the apology that I'm making on in the faith. So we have the the general context, Uh, but well before that, let, let me just ask, How many, by show of hands, how many times have you heard people say that, uh, you know, I turned away from Christ, I walked away from the church because the ungodly conduct of Christians Uh, or, you know, Christians, as Gandhi said, you know, I like their Christ, but I don't like the Christians because the Christians are so unlike their Christ. I mean, how many times have you heard that? Or like, how many... Yeah, how many people have heard that? You've probably heard that multiple times. If you, you see and hear people walking away from Christianity, at least in an external way, because of their, the relationships they have with Christians. And it almost doesn't matter how true or how compelling what you're saying is. You've not only lost the engagement, but more importantly, you've failed to be a faithful witness as soon as you have failed to live in accordance with Christian conduct and a Christ-like character. You know, that discussion is closed. So, but let's just look at these. We'll get into a general context of our lives. And I'm going to further break that down into our external relationships and internal relationships. So, Titus 2, 7, if you... If you have your Bibles, you're going to need them. If you don't have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to get your phone out because I I didn't put everything up or you can just listen if that's how you like to learn. So we start with how we're relating to the world around us, unbelievers, these external relationships. Titus 2, verse 7 to 9. Can anyone read that for me? Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show you charity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So initially, Paul is addressing Titus, particularly, and he exhorts him to show himself in all respects a model of good works to teach with integrity and dignity sound speech that cannot be condemned. And I would say that this first part is general and then the second part is, is more immediate. But just notice what it is, the explicit purpose of this exhortation. It is so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So the context of this exhortation is most immediately... Not just about living a life that conforms to the image of Christ and glorifies God. Of course, that's important. That's always our ambition and desire as Christians. Uh, But the context is as we engage with the world around us, and even more precisely, opponents. Paul has in mind people who are opposing the gospel. People who are going to bring challenges against the claims of Christ. People who are going to bring accusations against the messenger of Christ. And Paul says, the first offense, that's what apologia is. And our first offense is a model of good works. With most people, your argument begins long before you ever enter into a discussion with them. Perhaps even before you meet them. It begins with developing a genuine godly character. It begins with developing a reputation In your circles, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, wherever it might be. Not only being patient, kind, and merciful, but Paul says actively looking to do good to people. Being a model of good works. And there have been times in church history where the church has done this well. So I just want to read you something from Emperor Julian in 362. So this is after much of the empire, the Roman Empire, had been Christianized it was after Constantine. And Julian was kind of the last pagan emperor. Uh, and he was trying to revive traditional Roman paganism in the religion, or in the, in the empire. And he was running up against these difficulties. And so he's writing a letter to a, a high priest in Roman paganism. And uh, this is what he writes. It's just, compelling and convicting. He says, we need to observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism. And atheism, of course, in his context means people aren't believing in the Roman pantheon of gods. So by atheism, he means Christianity. (laughs) Um, But he says it's their benevolence to strangers, their care for the, the burial of, of the dead, and their pretended holiness that have done so much to increase atheism. I believe that we ought really and truly practice every one of these virtues. And it's not enough for you alone to practice them, he's writing to a priest, but so must all the priests in Galatia, without exception, either shame or persuade them into righteousness or else remove them from their priestly office. If they do not, together with their wives, children, and servants, Attend the worship of the gods, but allow their servants or sons or wives to show impiety towards the gods and honor atheism more than piety. In the second place, admonish them that no priest may enter a theater or drink in a tavern or control any craft or trade that is base and not respectable. Honor those who obey you, but those who disobey, expel them from office. In every city, establish frequent hostels in order that strangers may profit by our benevolence. I do not mean for our people only, but for others also who are in need of money. I I have but now made a plan by which you may be well provided for this. For I have given direction that 30,000 modai of corn shall be assigned to every year for the whole of Galatia and 60,000 pints of wine. I order that one fifth of this be used for the poor who serve the priests and the remainder be distributed by us to strangers and beggars. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, he's speaking of Christians, and the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this sort, and the Hellenic vill- villages to offer their first fruits to the gods, and accustom those who love the Hellenic religion to these good works by teaching them that this was our practice of old. And so here is this opponent of Christianity. Like it is his life endeavor to quell Christianity and to revive Roman paganism. And he's put to shame. Why? Because the Christian community were known for being a model of good works. And he has nothing to say because they were simply being outdone And so the best he can do is try to imitate them. And, you know, what's so convicting to me today is that I've heard unbelievers say, well, if you you ever need help moving, just ask the Mormons. Because the Mormons will always help you. And, you know, the Mormons believe even crazier stuff than we do. But nevertheless, they have a reputation of good works. People know that, oh yeah, I'm, I have a Mormon neighbor and, and he's always ready to help me. He's always ready to just like, I, I don't even know this guy, but he's going to give up his Saturday to help me move. And I just, I, I was so convicted. I heard that years ago from somebody I know and and I was so convicted by it. You know, and I I would hope that the unbelieving community, they they might look at us and say, you know, they might believe crazy stuff. Their beliefs might be backwards and antiquated or whatever. But you can't say that they aren't kind or generous. You, you can't say they don't seek and try to be helpful and loving to the people around them. That is convicting to me. And according to Paul in scripture, being a model of good works is our first apologetic. And uh, that is the first apologetic to the challenges and accusations of the opponent. And if someone does try that, Paul says they're put to shame because it's so evident and obvious to everyone else. Like, come on, you can't actually bring that charge against him because it's evident that, that they're not selfish and greedy people who are trying to take advantage of those around them. And But you do notice that Paul is addressing Titus. He's speaking to a pastor. So you might say, well, is that really true for all of us? Or is that, really just addressed to the pastor and those in ministry? Is it for the, the average Christian? Well, I'm glad you asked, because if you go on in that same passage, notice in verse 9, this is immediately following. In Titus 2, verse 9, he says, "Bond bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, the person addressed is not, being, is not a pastor, but a bondservant or a slave. And Paul similarly tells him to guard his conduct, to live in a certain way, to be submissive, to do good work, to serve them well. Why? What's the explicit purpose of this exhortation? It is so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. I mean, this is crazy talk. Or to sound more intelligent, it's paradigm shifting. That, you know, can you imagine? I can imagine a slave coming to Paul, you know, after a service, after they worship together. He's just been exhorted concerning all these lofty realities. And he's like, Paul, all I do is lay bricks every day. All I do is gather wheat every day. All I do is clean up after my master. There's nothing I can do to advance the gospel. I, I just can't participate. Like, I'm so thrilled that you can travel around and you can share the gospel with others. And you can do that. But I just feel like my life is pointless. Because I'm not doing any of that. I'm just doing these, these mundane tasks every day. And Paul looking at him and saying, Brother, you're not just laying bricks. You're not just gathering in the harvest. You're not just cleaning up after your master. No, what you're doing in all of that, when you do it well, is you are adorning the doctrine of God. Because you bear the name of Christ. And your life Is an argument for Christ. Surely you can see how broad the application is here. If if this applies to the slave in his work, then all secular work becomes sacred. Uh, Everything that we intuitively think belongs in the sphere of kind of just like creation. Uh, This isn't a gospel reality. This isn't redemptive in what I'm doing. It's just like, just belongs to this earth, but Paul says, "No, no, no, no! All of this, in the way that you do it, whether you have a, a joyful attitude or a bitter attitude, whether you have a submissive attitude to your superiors or you know a divisive, com- complaining, and a bad attitude, uh, you are you're either going to adorn the doctrine of God or you are going to tarnish the doctrine of God." By your conduct. And so we can just think about that in in every domain of life. Uh, And this is why I'm just trying to emphasize as we set the context for apologetics, that all, all all of life is apologetic. Everything you do, every interaction you have, every engagement, you are either adorning the doctrine of God or you are in some way Tarnishing the doctrine of God. So, we can never separate apologetics as if it's this one little niche part of Christianity with the rest of our lives. Uh, It's not only intuitive and common sense that the character of our lives and the nature of our relationships will either help or hinder our neighbor's reception of the gospel, but it's also explicitly biblical but there's a couple other verses that I just want to mention in connection with this. A passage that you know well, uh, Matthew five thirteen to 17 So if you'd like to flip there. Uh, could someone read that nice and loud for us? You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that you may see, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Yeah, so. And what seventeen two? Uh, no, that's good. Sorry. So notice again that there is a direct connection between. The conduct of our lives and our apologetic. Let your light so shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew seven that we're we're not trying to showcase our good works. We're not trying to put them on display in an inauthentic way. But we are simply to live out our lives in good faith as disciples and followers of Jesus. And inevitably, if it is the habit of your life, if it is the, the real, genuine, sincere character and conduct uh, of, that permeates all of your life, eventually, it's going to become evident in, in the eyes of others. We're not trying to make it evident, but it just is. And, and Jesus says, let that light shine so that others may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And we could go on another passage that I want to highlight: First uh, Peter three one. If someone could read that for us. Likewise, wives, all right. Hmm. Yep. Yep. That's one. You subject to your own husband, but even if some. Do not the word. they may be one a word by the of your life, yeah. your life. So, as you'll notice from Paul's hesitation, you know, is this a particular context? Uh, yes, it is. But does that particular context uh, have application? Is there a truth there that we can apply to every domain of life? Yes. Uh, here is a wife with an unbelieving husband. And Paul makes it clear that every interaction you have is part of your apologetic to your husband. Every interaction is an apo- apologetic interaction. She's trying to win her husband. That's our ultimate goal, right? What we talked about last week. We're trying to win people to Christ. And, and Paul says, you can do this. She's, okay, so it's unique in a, a wife and a husband. Paul says, by your pure and holy conduct to try to win your husband without a word. Uh, But the principle is that that we should think about all of our interactions as either adorning the gospel of God or we are tarnishing the gospel and uh, bringing up blight upon the gospel. Uh, And I think... Even by now, I've been here for a few months, and I think everyone knows me well enough that uh, I'm about communicating the gospel with words. (laughs) I I don't endorse the idea that that we're just to to do good works and let our light shine and and that we're supposed to avoid the gospel. No, we must communicate the gospel with words. Uh, You cannot love someone into the kingdom any more than you can argue them into the kingdom. However, it's clearly, we this text after text after text, it's clear that the conduct of our lives matters for the compellingness of our apologetic. So, the general context of our lives and all the, the seemingly mundane things we do, the seemingly mundane interactions we have with uh, you know, co-workers, employees, employers neighbors, whatever they might be, all of those serve as a foundation that frame, eventually, what we pray for, those gospel conversations and and those interactions that we have. So, and it's just vital that we're standing on a a solid foundation in, in the context of what kind of, how have we framed uh by our conduct and by our interactions, those conversations that are going to take place. Uh, but I also want to, to briefly mention uh internal relationships. And by internal I, I mean within the church, uh, simply because this is something that is highlighted in Scripture. So I want to highlight as well. Uh, John 1335. And then you can stay in John after that, because then we're gonna flip to John seventeen. But start with John thirteen thirty-five. Can someone read that for us? By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, Jesus says that at least one of, if not a, a primary, identifying, distinguishing mark of genuine Christians is a genuine love that they share for one another. And, and so, if there's a unity in the church, it speaks about genuine, authentic discipleship of Christ. Uh, Uh, we've got a lot of verses here, so we'll just keep going. John 17 to 20. I'm sorry. John 17, 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So... A distinguishing mark of the church is love for one another. But then even more compelling is that here in John 17 is that Jesus prays for our unity that we may all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And Jesus repeats this again in, in the same passage. So there is an apologetic argument in the unity of the church that they may believe And I would just highlight that this isn't mere pragmatic reasoning. Uh, So oftentimes in these kinds of discussions, I hear people say, well, the church should do this or it shouldn't do that. Uh, It shouldn't talk this way. It shouldn't decorate this way or uh, whatever. All sorts of things that the church should or shouldn't do because, you know, it's going to make people feel this way or that way. um, And it's going to make them more or less likely to embrace Christianity or embrace the gospel. Uh, But so often, I, I just hear, it's just kind of their intuition and their kind of pragmatic reasoning of what they think will or will not incline people to embrace Christ. But this is not one of those things. This is something that Jesus says, I'm praying for their unity so that the world may believe. May believe what? That you have sent me. That I am the Messiah. That I am the eternal Son of God. The one who comes bringing salvation and hope and life to the world. Uh, It's not just an opinion. It's not common sense or observation. But it is a biblical truth that if there is mutual love, affection and warmth in the church, it will attract people to Christ. So, that our prayer should be also that we may be one not not only just for the health and the well-being of the church but so that we can be more effective in our witness to the world so that our apologetic argument would be more compelling uh, and this has what I'm about to say has less to do with apologetics and, and more to do with uh, interpreting scripture but but just notice that in all the passages that we've read so far, there is a conjunction. And that, that conjunction is, so that. It marks purpose. And when you see, so that, it, it ties the relationship between what Jesus is praying for, the unity of the church, and, and the purpose for which he's praying for it, uh, namely, that others would believe. So it makes it explicit that, you know, whether it's Paul or Peter or Jesus, uh, talking about our, our good works, so that uh, the opponent may be put to shame. It it locates the exhortation and the commandment in an explicitly apologetic uh, context. And, and so you just want to pay attention to conjunctions, because they're so important in establishing and framing the, the context. That's what highlights that all of these imperatives or truths are, are not just general truth that, oh, we should try to do these things because God said so. But there's a particular reason that God would have us to do these things. And in all the passages we've looked at, it is so that the world may believe or so that our opponents may be put to shame. So that you may adorn the doctrine of God to the unbelieving world. But in any case, I I just read John 17. We look at it. Because sometimes the compelling argument might simply be that you love your church. That might be the thing that wins someone to Christ. Uh, and I'm not just talking about, well, the sermon's really good and, and I really like the music, like the church. But I'm saying the the people, the actual the body of Christ and the relationships you have. And that might be the thing that an outsider looks at and says, man... I wish I had a community like that. Uh, That is beautiful. I would like to be a part of that. And that alone isn't going to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ, but it inclines them to the gospel, and it opens their ears to see a community of people who love each other. Because the reality is uh, that, and all of this is serving to show that, you know, none of our conversations happen in a vacuum. It's not just conversations on paper, Just mere objective, totally objective without any context. Or all of our contexts happen in all of our conversations, happen in the context of our lives and the relationships we have with other people. And it's framed by how you treat them, how you relate to your church, and uh, you know, what you say about other Christians and and how you live, and all these things. So, you know, that's the general context of, of apologetics, it's the whole of our lives. And how we're living. But once again, I said uh, that there's not only a general context, but there's also the immediate context. So, by immediate context, I mean when we're actually speaking to people and, and engaging with them. And, and the first text I want to look at is 1 Peter 3, 13-16. Uh, we looked at this last week, but I skipped over some pieces of information that I want to highlight this time. So if someone has that one, can you read that out for us? Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against you or against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Here is the text when it comes to apologetics. Always being prepared to make a defense. Yet, Peter says... You know, it's not enough to make a compelling case. It's not enough that you have a good argument, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, unfortunately, I think just the way that we're wired, sometimes the people who are most drawn to actually engaging in apologetics are the people who are not only, you know, the most comfortable in situations of confrontation, but maybe they even enjoy confrontation and engaging in the conflict. And that doesn't necessarily make for a good, biblical, Christ-like engagement. Sometimes the people who are most capable in terms of the method are the least qualified in terms of the manner of their engagement. And I'm sure you have seen this before. Uh, Perhaps you have been that person before. And whether it's an apologetic argument or just other kinds of discussions, I know that I certainly have been. You know, I'm making my case because I know that I'm on the side of truth. And I'm making my argument, but I'm not doing it with gentleness. And I'm not doing it with respect. And of, go- of course, you know, we should know that God can use all sorts of pitiful attempts. But humanly speaking, humanly spe- speaking, as soon as we get angry, as soon as we get visibly irritated, as soon as you speak in a condescending tone, as soon as you become disrespectful of the person that you are speaking with, you have already lost, period. Like it doesn't matter what happens in the discussion. It doesn't matter how strong your case is. You have already lost when you have been become you know, condescending or disrespectful or anything like that. It doesn't matter if you expose. Their... I was going to say, I call it stomping around in a puddle full of Jesus seeing how many people you can splash with it. Yeah. It's just not winsome. Yeah. I, I've been that guy. So yeah. Speak from experience. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so, like you're saying, it just doesn't matter if you expose the incoherency of the argument or, or their folly in the position. Uh, if you do it without gentleness and respect, you lose. And, and we just, that has to frame every time that you engage with someone. If you let someone provoke you, like some people, they're opponents, uh, and they're going to intentionally try to provoke you. They're going to try to get a rise out of you. And if you let them do that, well, then you lose. Your first commitment must simply be to honor Christ the Lord as holy. And, and so, you know, you're entering conversations, and it, maybe it's with, you know, a co worker, maybe it's with a, a family member, whatever. And you, Lord, just help me to honor you. Help me to be a faithful witness to you, and that I might honor you as holy in this conversation, both in what I say. And in the way that I say it, the way that I treat them as a fellow image bearer. And in one sense, you have to be willing to say, well, it's okay if they make false accusations against me. It's okay if I get thrown under the bus. It's okay if whatever, I don't care. I just want to honor you as holy. And this is exactly the kind of attitude that we are called to embrace, uh, both here in First Peter, where when you're, you know, Suffering for righteousness sake, you're being slandered and mistreated, but then uh, also in other places. So Second um, 2 Timothy 2.22, why don't we go there? So I'm just trying to pile on some verses so that it's really evident that the Bible's testimony is not only clear, but is very emphatic about this. This is something that comes up over and over and over again about the way that we are engaging with other people. Especially in these kinds of conversations, which are prone towards, can become emotionally, 224 to 26. Can you read that? And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So it's clear that Paul has in mind situations where people are not being kind to you. People are not being gentle. They are doing evil to you. And the calling of the servant of Christ is to continue to be kind, to continue to be patient, enduring evil, uh, to be gentle, And yet, to still correct them. So, there is a place to speak. There is a place to contend for the truth. Uh, They make claims. And and the servant of Christ has a place to dispute those claims. And to undermine those claims. And and to expose those claims as false. There is a place to verbally correct them. And and say, no, that, that is not what is true. But we also have to do that with gentleness and respect. And so, the, the Christian ethic is not one of avoiding conflict at all costs. Simply conceding the argument and trying to avoid any dispute, any potential conflict, any potential un- discomfort. That, that's not what we're called to as Christians. Uh, in, our, in our culture, at least with the younger generation, I think probably more influenced by the pluralism and uh, that's just predominant in our culture where it's like, well, if you don't affirm someone in everything that they do and everything that they believe, then you're being mean <laughs> or you're being unloving and unkind. You know, but that's, that's not true. Treating all worldviews as equal is not the loving thing to do. Uh, affirming people in their rebellion against God and Uh, rejection of eternal life and forgiveness is not the loving thing to do. There is a place to correct people. But as we see, 1 Peter, 2 Timothy, we are to do it in kindness, with gentleness, and even when we are enduring mistreatment. And now I know that's easier said than done, Uh, especially sometimes with uh, a brother or a sister uh, that is not walking with the Lord, I mean, there's a long history. And they know how to get under your skin. Uh, They have all sorts of legitimate accusations that they can bring against you in terms of ways in which you might be a hypocrite, and and they're happy to bring those up. I mean, there's all sorts of things. I would say definitely with me, you know, uh, my brother's not an unbeliever, but if anyone in the world is able to get a rise out of me, it's my brother. But, again, we can't do that. Because as soon as we descend into just acting out in in the flesh, walking in the flesh, our message is compromised. The claims that we are making are compromised. And also bear in mind that, like I said, this is not just true for when we're talking about the gospel with unbelievers, but this is universally applicable to every kind of interaction that we have, especially potential conflicts, uh, whether it's with your spouse or your child, or whatever, what, what is the manner in which you want to do it? Well, like this, with gentleness, kindness, and, and even if they're, you know, bringing, mistreating you in some way, uh, there, there's a place to, to bear up under that. But the point is that maintaining your testimony is always more important than the point that you're trying to make. And you must be committed to that before you go, you know, before you're actually engaging with someone. Because you're not going to decide that. You're not going to come to that conclusion Mm -hmm. after you've just been slandered or reviled. Uh, You have to already be persuaded in your heart and convinced that the most important thing is not me defending myself, but me honoring Christ the Lord as holy. But we see that the Christian has to be bold enough and brave enough to speak, and sometimes even to correct, to be willing to enter in to some level of potential conflict. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that conversations, hopefully, they're not like that. Uh, we want to steer them away from being combative. But any time that, that you disagree with someone and you make that disagreement known, you're entering into the potential, the possibility that they're not going to appreciate you disputing their claims. So it takes some boldness to be willing to do that. But on the other hand, there has to be a, a just firm commitment to, I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be respectful. Even when I'm being disrespected, I'm going to treat them well when they're treating me poorly. And that has to shape how we think about our interactions. And I think that's evident from the, the sheer quantity of text that this is something that is really important. So any, basically, any time we see in Scripture that they're talking about engaging with your opponents, it's always framed with gentleness and respect, with kindness. Uh, but there's one last text that I really want to highlight because it's not easy. So, how do we do that? How do we actually get to the place, <laughs> this is the hard part, of uh, where our heart and our mind is willing to, you know, rather suffer mistreatment than to vindicate ourselves and to... Do you want to... Yeah. But, um, my daughter and I were talking yesterday about this because she was like, I want to be humble and lowly." but then I get so upset about things and, and like but then there's also things that you want to stand for I'm like there's a difference between like humble and lowly and weak and spineless mm-hmm. <laughs> right so like to not stand for anything is not what we're going for mm-hmm. it's to be like about how we are you know as we engage with our brothers yeah. or engage with the world to so, try to be yeah, uh, yeah, and it's not—it's not easy. Uh, but let, let's read uh, Titus two one to seven. Uh, this will be our last text, but this is powerful to me. All right, so I'll, I'll read this to Titus three one. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So these are the themes that we've been seeing all throughout this morning. Good works, avoid quarreling, be gentle, don't speak evil of people, uh, and what I consider the real zinger, showing perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, do I show perfect courtesy toward all people? No, I don't. And I don't like that I don't. I failed to do something that I would want to do. And now the question is, well, how do I become someone who's more faithful, more just my habit, that Christ has formed in me, such that I show perfect courtesy toward all people? You know, because if I could wake up, you know, and flip a switch, I I don't know where the switches are in this room. Oh, they're over there. You know, that... I could just flip the perfect courtesy switch I would gladly do that Uh, but it's not that simple as we all know Uh, so how do we how do we become people who are going to show perfect courtesy toward all people even when like in Peter and in 2 Timothy we're being mistreated or slandered or reviled in some way he goes on verse 3 4 he's making an argument How how do we do that? by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, if we're going to show perfect courtesy toward all people, in all situations, we have to take the Gospel to heart. That we are fundamentally no different and no better than any other person out there. No other, you know, God hating, gospel, not just rejecting, but despising, this uh, vehemently opposed to the gospel. And Paul says, yeah, yeah, we too were like that. Uh, we too were foolish and disobedient and led astray. But then God saved us. And it wasn't because we were smart. It wasn't because we were so wise or our moral or good people. He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And if we really believe that, and that really permeates and takes root in our heart, then there is a place for compassion to even the most heinous, the most God-hating sinner. Because we know that fundamentally, inherently, we're no better. God intervened in our lives, which is the only reason that we have a love for him and we embrace the truth of the gospel. And the more that we're persuaded of that, the less that we will be condescending to people who reject the gospel, the more that we will be inclined to show courtesy to them, to be respectful. Because yeah, we know down deep in our hearts that we really aren't any better than them. So, that truth has to permeate our apologetic if we're going to do it the way that that we're supposed to in that immediate context of always having uh, courtesy, respect, and kindness. So, in summary, we have the general context of our lives. That's the big picture. You know, like when your children, look at your lives. The people who are closest to you, uh, do they see a genuine, sincere follower of Christ who fails but then repents and is honest and open, walking in the light, or do they see a hypocrite? Because also, how many times, you know, I've heard children say, I walked away from the faith because I, my, my parents, like they, they were one way in church and this way at home. And so the, the people who are close to you are going to see that clearly. But then also the immediate context of when we actually are interacting and engaging with people uh, that we want to treat them as image bearers of God. And, and therefore we treat them with respect and dignity, we show courtesy uh, even when we have the boldness and the braveness to correct to op- oppose the, the things that they are saying and, and we seek to undermine them. Does anybody have any comments or questions? I'm sorry no, wasn't a lot of engagement this morning but any comments or questions? Alright, let's pray. Uh, Lord, you've given us such a privilege, such a lofty calling uh, that we don't deserve and certainly we can't live up to by our own strength uh, to be ambassadors of Christ, uh, to be those who serve as your representatives on earth. Uh, And Lord, we want to do that well. Uh, We want to adorn the doctrine of God. We want to give our opponents them to be put to shame, having nothing to say against us. And we know that that uh, begins not just uh, with our ability to articulate the faith and uh, make compelling arguments, but uh, with the conduct of our lives. Uh, So help us to be people who are followers of Christ in word and deed. Uh, Help us to show uh, what you're like with our our actions and then, uh, Lord, and then give us the boldness, certainly give us the opportunities. We pray for open doors to share the gospel with others, uh, and, and help us to grow in our ability to articulate it, to defend it, to understand the Christian worldview and, and opposing worldviews. Uh, we need all of that, Lord. Uh, but help us simply, uh, to start with being faithful witnesses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.